and we are live. What's going on, everybody? Um, oh, it looks like there's a delay with the uh, with the, with with the video that I'm using right now. Let's see what's going on over here. Um, hopefully, this isn't going to be a problem. I'm trying to use a little bit better quality since I'm not live on TikTok right now. I figured I'd use my phone as the camera, but I forgot that when I do that it does uh, a little bit of a delay. So I'm actually going to go ahead and switch over cameras real quick. Uh, so for those listening, uh, because this is audio now, what's going on? And just give bear with me a second, because for those watching, we want to switch cameras and give them a better view of what's going on. There we go. Uh, we'll just have to deal with, with the lesser quality, because at the end of the day, what's mostly important is just being able to see what's happening and whatnot. Uh, but guys, what's going on, man? I, I miss y'all. Uh, as many of you know, I'm still technically restricted from uh, from live streaming on uh, TikTok because I got my live stream privileges revoked. And ironically, even though Justin's appeal was measured that day and, and it was responded to, my appeal is still pending. So at this point, I feel like, uh, you know, like if they know that I will win the win the appeal, what's the best way to go about, you know, still punishing me? Well, just uh, not responding to the appeal. I mean, then therefore I'm still punished and, and nothing ever comes of it. So uh, I kind of chalked it up as I'm not going to find my way back on TikTok live until uh, that appeal is over. But I hope that you guys uh, are having a blessed day. There we go. Sorry, I'm over here trying to do some last minute stuff. Um and oh man, by the way, 200,000 and I and I and I am so grateful for all of you guys cuz it's you sharing, it's you watching, it's it's you commenting, it's you liking. Um and I'm so grateful for you guys. I'm grateful that JD has been a part of this. Obviously, he's not with us right now because South Africa time. And uh honestly, this was originally something I was just going to do as a recording. But I figured if I go live, it's still recorded and I've got you guys here in the comment section hanging out with me. So therefore, we're just together. Uh, tonight's podcast is actually going to be about Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the uh, Bible. It's full of so much information and uh, JD really wanted to dive into it. So I said, you know what? That sounds like a great idea. So tonight we're doing one psalm, one psalm. Uh since JD's not here, obviously I forgot to say it, but please, if you have not already, subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you're listening on Spotify, please make sure that you are subscribing and uh, make sure you hit the notification bell and all that stuff because we go live twice a week, Monday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Central, and then we have other content that we'll be uploading. But like I was saying, today I wanted to talk about John chapter 6 because for some reason, whenever I, every couple months, Something will happen where Catholics show back up on my uh, page just by the boatload. And 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 what, what I think did it this time was someone asked me, Mike, what is the difference between a Protestant? Well, they said a Christian and a Catholic, but I know what they meant. They meant between a Protestant and a Catholic. And I just tried to answer it with a genuine answer, being unbiased. I, I don't feel like I was even, even though I could go in on Catholics, I chose not to at the moment. I just said, look, we believe this, they believe that. Here's the differences, because I want people to go do the research on their own. Like, if if this wasn't called true Christian ministry, it would be called uh, the starting line, because I just want to be the starting line. I just want to be the guy that fires off the gun and you start running. That's it. That's, also, that's all I want to do is start you on a path. Um, And just a bunch of Catholics showed up in the comment section just... <sighs> It just, they sometimes remind me of, uh, 
of a lot of the uh, like mid acts or oneness doctrines where it's like, if you don't believe what I believe, then it's just because you haven't asked God to reveal it to you or you just you just reject truth. It's this arrogance of like, I know for 100 percent fact that I'm right about everything. And if you don't agree with that, then you're just you're just you just don't understand. Um, so I've been going back and forth with them a little bit. And I wanted to address John chapter six because I get questions all the time about like, well, what about the Eucharist? What about the Eucharist? And it is an important question to ask. I don't like when people go on either direction, either, you know, misrepresenting what it is or just rejecting it. Uh, for example, I'm not a big fan of Protestant, most Protestant services on how they do communion. And, you know, they got the little, uh, the little plastic cup with a little bit of grape juice, about that much grape juice in it, like a little shot like that with like a little wafer this big. And it's like, zip. So for the people listening on Spotify, this I'm miming right now how how Protestants take their communion in those types of churches. Um, I am a firm believer that it should be bread and wine, right? And I mean bread, bread. I don't like the wafer thing either. I'd rather do bread, which is what they broke. Um, but it is very important. We are told by the Lord to do this in remembrance of me. That's what he says. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, and actually, you know what? Before we get into John 5, let me actually show you guys something cool about what Jesus says in that moment. So let's open up the Bible after. And I'm going to have to start getting used to how to present this with people listening on Spotify that might want to open up their Bible. I have to remember to, you know, make it very clear where I'm going in the Bible and whatnot. Um, and let's go to, I believe it's Hebrews 10. Okay. So Hebrews 10 says, For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, this isn't what we're talking about today, although it kind of is. Um, but this is where we see the author of, of Hebrews making it clear that the law was just a foreshadowing of the coming Christ. It actually does not uh, uh, you know, clean you or perfect you. That's not what happens when you, when you kill the bull or you kill the, you know, the, the, the sheep or anything like that. It's, it's not how that works. It's, it's, it's a foreshadowing. And then he says, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. So he's saying, if it actually did clean you of sins, then why would why would they feel the need to do it over and over and over again? And now he's about to tell you what the purpose of it was. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Listen to what he said. He said, the sacrifice was to be a reminder of our sins. So once a year, when, when on the holy, when they, when they went there, yeah, yeah, look at me, I'm getting tongue twisted. When they, when the high priest would go into the holy of holies and the sacrifice, the day of atonement, this was to remind them of their own transgressions. That's what was on mind. I, I, I need to be saved. I mean, well, not I need to be saved because they wouldn't be thinking about it like that, but I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Now, here's the interesting thing I want to show you because there's a parallel here. So let's go down to that word reminder. It says, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verse three, for those listening. And that word reminder in the Greek is anamnesis, anamnesis. So let me look at it real quick. We're going to open it up. And, and as I show you guys, you know, I, I 
have Bible screen on 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 the on the YouTube channel. If you're not watching it and you want to see it, you can come over there and look at it. So real quick, we're gonna look at this word. This word right here is only used in the scriptures four times in Greek. This word, I'm not uh uh let me see if I can pronounce it properly again. Anomnesis is only used four times, and it's used as remembrance and reminder. Let's take a look. At the time, it's used as a reminder. We see in Hebrews 10.3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. Okay, so that's where it's used right there. Let's use see where it's used as remembrance. In Luke 22.19, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In 1 Corinthians 11.24, when talking about that moment, he, he, he quotes Jesus saying he took the bread, he broke it, and said, do this in remembrance of me. And in 1 Corinthians 11.25, he did it again. So this word in Greek is really only used for two situations. One of them is the reminder of sin, which was why we had the old sacrifices. And the new reminder in Christ, where instead of us remind, remembering our sin, we remember our sin bearer. Because it says here that he said, do this in remembrance of me. So for every year in the old covenant, they would come together, have the sacrifice, and it was to be a remembrance of their sins, to be a reminder of how much we need God. And then with Christ... We no longer remember our sins because they are blotted out. They are forgotten. They are forgiven. But our reminder is now set on the one that took our place. Our reminder is now set on our sin bearer. So that's a little fun fact to, to realize here that what, what's being said when it says that, you know, these sins, uh, I mean, these sacrifices were to be a reminder. That's the exact same word that Jesus uses to say, remember me, not your sins. Remember me. And that's important. That's important towards what we're talking about today, because the point of the uh, the question about what does John six talk about is people asking about the communion, which is where Jesus says, "Do this in remembrance of me." Now I'm going to leave Hebrews ten open in my second uh, uh, window because we are going to need to come back to Hebrews actual nine and ten, but we're going to focus on ten probably because I feel like it's going to be necessary. So now let's go to John chapter four. Because I want uh, I want to point something out before we go into John five and then we do John six. Um, in fact, even in John three, uh, if you've been a, a follower, I don't like that word, but if you've been following my page for for some time and you've been able to listen to a few of my Bible studies, there's one thing I've pointed out I think more than once, and that is in the Gospel of John we see a constant theme with how Jesus um, speaks to people and 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 responds to people. And one of the and that one common theme is he uses things that they bring to the conversation to explain what he's saying. And we notice that he does not start talking about this thing until that other person brings it up. Let me give you a clarification of what I mean. In John chapter three, it starts off with Jesus just saying, you must be born again. He's not talking about water. He's not talking about spirit, nothing, because he expects the Pharisee Nicodemus to understand him. But the. The Pharisee says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So he talks about going back into his mother's womb. And Jesus then uses an explanation saying, well, no, you have to be born of water and then born of the spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. So he uses what Nicodemus brought forward to help him understand what he was saying. 
In John chapter 4, he does it again. He asks for a drink, and the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, asks for a drink from me, a woman of Samar uh, Samaria? So she points out that you shouldn't be asking me for a drink. So he flips it. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So he flips it on you. I'm asking you to give me a drink, but I have a drink better for you. And then in John chapter six, we're going to see him talk about him being bread. And I want you to remember that he uh, that I said he doesn't start using these metaphors or these 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 uh, symbols until somebody else brings it up. And we're going to get there. But I want to start at John chapter five, because John five is very important for understanding John six. I mean, uh, I tell you guys all the time, we got to read Bible in context, which means don't just start at where your issue is at. Start much before that. In fact, if we had the time, I would be like, let's start at John chapter one. I would love to do that. Commercial break while I drink water. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So let's uh, turn to John chapter five. That's what I was doing. I was giving you guys time to turn to chapter five, you know, just helps out the best. It says after this, <clears throat> sorry, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof uh, colonnades, excuse me, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to them, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I am going Another steps down before me. Now, if you're not familiar with what he's talking about, I think the chosen actually, uh, uh, and I, I will rarely ever use the chosen in a Bible study, but I actually do think that they uh, helped people understand a little bit of what is being said here. Uh, because, you know, sometimes you have to see it with your eyes to really have an understanding of what it is you're reading, uh, especially me. I have a terrible uh imagination when it comes to trying to picture things. But what was happening back then that the chosen didn't mention is this was a pagan God that they, uh, I forget the name of the God that they believed in healing in this water. And Jews were coming there too, because they lost faith in Yahweh. They weren't, they doubted him. And, and this is obviously this man has doubted Yahweh because he's here at this pool thinking that this pool is going to save him. I got to get in there. And they believed whenever the water got stirred up because it was like a spring or something, that meant that whoever's in there would be healed. And then Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that was the Sabbath day. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is no, not lawful for you to take up your bed. I, I, I know this isn't the topic, but if we're going to read scripture, we're going to point things out that are necessary. I feel like there are so many people so many people today that have become this and don't realize it. This man is healed by the grace of God. Our Lord and Savior gives him new legs, basically. And the Pharisees' first issue is, why would you pick up that bed? You know that that's not lawful. You can't do that. Because they're so worried about the tightrope that is the law 
that their eyes aren't up to help others, even though the law that they're keeping is also traditions of men that has been uh, uh, abused and, and exaggerated. And we still see that today where people are so worried about, you know, what is or isn't a sin. And I might step on a crack, break my mother's back, that their eyes are set down on their feet walking this tightrope. When Jesus said, I lay a bridge for you to walk across with your eyes up so you can see my, my other children and you can save them and help them. But I digress. Let's continue. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. <laughs> I can imagine if I'm dude who's been paralyzed for 38 years, bro, ain't nothing you saying to me that's stopping me. I'm be like, yo, first of all, watch your mouth. Second of all, he said, get up and walk. And I walked. You ain't never tell me to get up and walk. I don't know why you talking to me right now. You wasn't talking to me a minute ago when I was on the ground. You was walking over me. Now you mad that I got up and walked. I would have, <laughs> I would have flipped on him. Like, bro, I'm walking and I, I deuce out while high stepping. I, what? You ain't walked for 38 years? And Jesus said, get up and walk. You think I'm about to sit here and listen to you try and tell me that I can't get up? Like I'm finna lay here for one more day because I picked up my mat? Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And, and, and I digress, I digress. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. I think that's crazy that he he low-key snitching. Like he knew they was looking for him. He went, got the name, came back. But then again, I don't think he knew what they were asking for. Maybe he thought that they wanted to know who had this ability to heal him and, and you know what I mean? Uh, what message might he have? So maybe that's why, but it is crazy that he's like, Oh, well, let me go back and tell y'all his name, Jesus, by the way. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them. My father is working until now and I am working. Now, I, I'm not a Greek scholar, so I can't explain to you 100% why this works this way. But one of the Greek scholars that I that I try to learn from and study under, he breaks this down so well to where you understand why they were ready to kill him after this. Because the way he says this is not a, uh, uh, a submission son but a, 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 an equality because my father is working until, I mean, my father's working until now, until now, and I am working shows that I do what my father does. My father and I have the same job. We do it the same way. I walk in line with my father. And, and this is why, and right here, the next verse, verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God, his own father, making himself equal with God. When someone says, where does the Bible say Jesus is God? Every single book of the Bible, every single part of the gospel. Here's another example. The Jews recognized it just because you in 2023, in your modern day context, don't recognize it. Like a, a, an atheist will read the Bible uh, in English and with context of 2023 and be like, well, he's just saying, you know, before Abraham was, was, you know, the, who I was going to be, the, the thought of me in God's mind. It was in existence. So I am like, no, that's not how this works at all. 
Likewise, right here, the Jews obviously recognized he was making himself like God. They wouldn't have just been like, oh, okay, we're just going to, you know, let that slide. No, they were upset. They tore their robes. They wanted to stone him, throw him off mountains. Now let's roll into verse 19. Again, this is just context building us up to where we're actually going, which is John chapter 6. Now in verse 19, this is actually one of my favorite passages in the Gospels. I believe this is this is, a, is an incredible uh, section of the Bible that really helps you to see the salvation, the, the security we have in Christ. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raised the dead and gives them eternal, uh, gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. That's an important one right there. The son give, man, listen, <laughs> he says, for as the father raised the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. When you speak to an, uh, a Muslim that says, you know, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He just claims to be the son of God and, 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 and he never puts himself on the same level as God. If you read these scriptures, there's so many spots that you could just point to be like, that would be blasphemy if I said it. If I said right now, uh, for the father raises the dead and gives them life, but me, I can give life to whom I will. That would be utter blasphemy. The way Jesus speaks can't be spoken by a person that's not him or else it's blasphemy. To whom he will, Jesus will. Verse 22, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. This is also uh, a big banger on the oneness people. This makes no sense in oneness theology for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not. Oh, got a phone call coming in. Not important. Whoever does not honor the father who sent him. Oh, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who's in him. Sorry, I got someone tried to call me, mess me all up. Listen, what's being said there. Again, I know this isn't about what we're going to, but we're here, right? We might as well. It's something to, it's something to chew on. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Oneness cannot explain that to me, I bet. That all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Well, if the son is the father, then if you honor the son, then you honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. There's another one. Sent him. Sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but passed from death to life. This is your eternal security right here. If someone tells you you can lose your salvation, that would mean you stand before the judgment seat that is for condemnation and you get your sins are, are, are brought up. But it says here that whoever hears his word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not, he does not come into judgment, but passed from death to life because Jesus stood your place at judgment. So you go from death to life because you don't have to do that again. He already did that for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here 
when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Oneness doctrine, again, doesn't make sense. Why would Jesus grant that Jesus has life? It doesn't stop. (laughs) And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That's a Man, again, not really meant to be here, but guys, do you see what just just was said? I bet it's the cross-reference. Nope, it's not. Let me go ahead and just open it real quick. Let's go to... Daniel 7 real quick. What's what's happened? If you're a Jew from this day, this is what you know Daniel 7 says. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So if you've ever wondered, why does Jesus call himself the son of man? Um, Because you might be a newer viewer here and you're not aware of this or a newer listener. So the title son of God is not actually Jesus's unique divine claim. There are multiple sons of God in the Old Testament. In fact, this is why John, the author John, makes it very clear that Jesus is distinct because he says he is the only monogamous, which is we have translated to begotten in some translations and some other ones it just says only or unique. Um, but that's what monogamous means. I mean, it's mono, so one, and uh, genes, G-E-N-E-S, which uh, it has this uniqueness to it. I'm not 100% sure on the definition right here in front of you, but my point is he he's identified as a different type. Of, of son of God, that he's not like the others because the others in the old Testament, we see are created beings, right? You either have the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim that are in heavenly realms. And even David is called a son of God, right? So the son of man is his divine claim. That is why when he, when he invokes it, that's when Jews start getting real upset. They get upset about the son of God part as well, but this is the one. And the, and the statement comes from Daniel 7, when he sees that there is one like a son of man. Now, what does that mean? That means you're, imagine for a second you're groggy and you're waking up and there's this vision you're given and you see a figure shaped like a person, shaped shoulders, arms, like you don't actually see their face, but you see the figure. So he said one like a son of man because he's looking in the heavens and he sees who is clearly divine, but they look like they're shaped like us, the son of man. Because people will say, well, uh, the Bible says God is not a son of man that he should lie. Numbers, whatever, 23 or something like that. Well, God isn't a son of man. The, the, t- the title here is saying that he's one like a son of man. And then later on, he calls my, himself the son of man because he's saying, I am that, Daniel 7. I am what, what the prophecy says. And listen to what it says. And he came to the ancient of days. That's, that's the most high. That's the father. And was presented before him. Oneness also. Whenever we come across something that the oneness doctrine has uh, trouble with, we need to come up with like a little keyword where I could just throw it in there every time, like bananas. Every time I see it, just or message. I'm gonna just look at you and be like, message. <laughs> Clip it. <laughs> and to him was given dominion. Here's what I want you to see, though. To him was given dominion. Can we highlight it? Sometimes my highlighter acts up when I'm on here with y'all. Okay, cool and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away 
and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So now remember that the prophecy of the son of man is a king, is the everlasting ruler of all things that is anointed by God the father and he is in the heavenly realm. Now listen what he says. An hour is coming. Oh, I'm sorry, let me go back. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Authority to execute judgment because he is the king everlasting. He is the king over all. So when we see Daniel 7 and then we see John John 5 when Jesus is saying, I have this authority because I'm the son of man, there's his claim. That's what Jesus means when he says, I am the son of man. When they, when the high priests are questioning Jesus and he, they asked him who he is and he says, and I have seen the son of man descending upon the clouds or whatever. And you will see the son of man depending. Uh, uh, yeah, I just descending up from the clouds. He's telling them like, bro, you know who I am. You know who I am. But then on top of that, though, so he just basically laid out all his authority, right? I'm the son of man. So what does that mean? That means he's the word of God. He is fully man, fully God, but he is the word of God, right? His, he doesn't need to appeal to anything outside himself for authority, right? He is authority. Watch what he does in the very next verse. This is why I love John 5 because it talks about our security. It also, for me, proves sola scriptura because here's what Jesus says. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my will, my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Wait a minute. Did God just say, if I just speak on myself, then it's not true? Because what he's saying is, I've, so let me break this down a little bit for you. God is saying, I've set a standard that I will keep even myself. Because what is his standard? His standard is to test everything by his word. And if he has set that standard and there are prophecies about his coming, then he must follow his own prophecies because he keeps his word. If Jesus was to just come and be like, all right, I'm Jesus and I'm God and and, and, and skip all the fulfillment of all prophecies, then, then he didn't even keep up with his own rules, his own uh, uh designation of how things would play out with when it comes to prophecy. So he's saying, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So he's about to give us three things that bear witness to him. So this is Jesus appealing to three things. First, he appeals to John the baptizer who prophesied about, oh, well, he was repeating, he was making way for Jesus, but he's, he's prophesying for the coming Messiah. He said, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. But then he reminds you that that's not the testimony he needs. He says, not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Oops, let me scroll down. Now here's where he's about to throw it down. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So he's saying, but me doing the things that I'm doing, which are fulfilling the scriptures and performing these great mighty signs and miracles as prophesied, that's what is bearing testimony to who I am. And then listen to what he says. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Where? In the Old Testament. Of the but the father, but of the son, the father says, um, let me go go 
show you that real quick. Say, well, when does the father, you know, um, testify of his son? And he does that all the time. But let's just look at uh, Psalm, Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your compassions. Your robes are all fragrant, uh, fragrant like mirror and aloes and cassia from ivory places. Stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of uh, in gold of Orful. Orful, yeah. And then he talks about Israel, hero daughter. And then, where's that? He ha- he himself has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form from you. His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom has sent me. And then my favorite verse in John chapter 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He... In 2023 language, just in case you're not really hearing the the deepness and what Jesus is saying here, is I believe he's saying this with a lot of heart. Like you're looking at these scriptures as if they can save you, but they're pointing to me because I can save you, but yet you won't come to me. And today that still applies to so many people, especially like Torah observant people. Like yo, you're 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 thinking that life is in there, but they that they point to me. And I give life. Yes, those are the word of God, but they point to me. Not to you getting life through your actions. Not to you getting life through your righteous deeds. Your righteous deeds are dirty rags to a holy and and magnificent God. And then listen what he says here. Man, I'll tell you, John 5, one of my favorites. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is one of those ones. If you ever run into Torah observant people, if you if you don't have John chapter 5 memorized, I don't know what you're doing. Anybody listening right now that was like, oh my goodness, that's the Torah observers. They put their hope in Moses. <laughs> and Jesus says to him straight up like, oh, don't worry. It'll be Moses who condemns you It'll be Mo- or accuses you. Because Moses wrote about me. Another one, if people say, well, how do you know Jesus was, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. Moses wrote about him. Thousands of years prior. And he says, but if you don't believe his writings, how are you going to believe me? Now, this is all important. Now we're going into John 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, right? He just did all that to the Pharisees. A lot of people were probably watching and they're like, yo, I need to hear more from him. 
and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to the mount, went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are those for so many? Jesus said, have people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place, so the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Notice it says the men sat down 5,000 in number. Scholars actually believe uh, if you count women and children, this was more like 15,000 because back then they only counted the men. So men, around 5,000. So if even half of them are married, that's 2,500 wives, right? And then two, three kids, right? And the number, the number definitely climbs quickly, but uh, it's estimated that this crowd was most likely 10,000 to 15,000 people, 5,000 men. My nose is itchy. Now there was, oh, sorry. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Here's another little fun fact. I wish I had the numbers in front of me or the statistics. My pastor actually shared this with me um, maybe like six months ago. He was reading a study that someone did. because someone. So basically someone wanted to know if this miracle is true, if Jesus actually did this, how much en energy would he have had to... Uh, uh, conjure up, or I don't want to use the word conjure with Jesus, but how much energy would have had to be dissipated, or I don't, again, trying to make up that word here, but used, exhausted to make that much matter, right? That much food. And um, again, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I, I'll, I'll look up the story and try and put it in the description after this. But um, supposedly, I, it's like enough power to run the entire planet for like a year. That, that's how much would have been generated in that moment to create that much matter because he took a, he took a lunchable worth of food and made it enough for 15,000 people. Like imagine for a second if 15,000 people sat down and I pulled out a little lunchable turkey and, uh, and, and cheddar because we don't do that pork around here, right? <laughs> like, all right, we're going to split this up. So he would have had to create matter from thin air. And this is why it's important to look at all the miracles of Jesus and you start to realize something. All of his miracles have one thing in common. They demonstrate his authority over the creation. He walks on water and calms the storm. He heals the sick, heals the blind, heals the crippled. He raises the dead. He curses the fig tree. He creates food. He creates drink. Every aspect of creation is under his authority through his miracles and you can see it. Name one aspect of creation that Jesus did not demonstrate his authority over while he was here. So even all of his miracles demonstrate the absolute authority over all of creation. Because we know from reading the epistles in the New Testament that all things were made through him and for him and by him. It's his stuff. All of it.
In fact, in Hebrews 1, um, I know that I'm bouncing all around. I apologize, guys. In Hebrews 1, I love what it says in the beginning about um, who Jesus is. It says, uh, starting at verse 3, he is, this is Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Let's get back to the text. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, if you're wondering what the, why it says the prophet instead of a prophet, so they are talking about the prophecy that one was going to come after Moses and like Moses, but greater than Moses, right? And he is going to be a prophet. And here's the here's something that Christians don't realize. When someone says, well, Jesus was, was a prophet, yeah, he was. He was also an apostle. He was also a high priest. He's everything. He's the fulfillment of all these things. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing at Jesus. Prophets point to Jesus. They're little versions of Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. They participated as being the word of God. You know, Through them did God deliver his word, but Jesus is the true word of God. The high priest who makes atonement for the sins of his people and represents them before God, that's what Jesus does to us perfectly, eternally, as the book of Hebrews says, right? So all these things in the Old Testament, they just point to Jesus. So when someone says, well, Jesus, look, see, the Bible says Jesus was a prophet. Yeah, the Bible says he was the great, perfect prophet. The Bible says he's the perfect apostle, the perfect high priest. Uh, I mean, you could go, he was a servant leader. Everything that you go down the list, yes, 100%. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is an important one that I want to point out because I've had some people that have hit me up and said, why did Jesus retreat and not let them make him king? And it comes down to what his purpose was. I made a video about this before, but Jesus's purpose was not to come and introduce us to the new to a new God. It was not to come be the ruler on earth physically and, and take a kingdom. His purpose was to come and make an atonement for the sins and start the kingdom of heaven and bring forth the kingdom of heaven where he reigns over all, not just in the physical realm. Jesus came to die on the cross, period. So why did he not let them take him as king? Because if he was a king, he was not getting put on a cross, period. This is why when uh, he finally tells the, because he doesn't start telling the apostles about his coming death until later in his ministry. In the gospel of Matthew, we see it happening right after he addresses Peter and says, you know, who do you say I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, you know, your flesh and blood did not, you know, reveal that to you, but my father in heaven did. You are Simon. Um, um, I mean, you are Peter. Uh, and upon this church, I will, I mean, upon this rock, I will build this church. Right after that, he then says, the son of man has to die. And Peter says, ah, not today, Lord. Peter's like, nah, bro, you know, I'm not letting that happen, Jesus. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. Just after saying to him, you know, all those things, he says, get behind me, Satan, because he came to die on the cross. He did. When I look at the cross, I know you have it in your heart to say, I wish I could have been there and I would have defended him and fought, but that's not what he wanted. He knew what he was going there for. He knew who he was dying for. He was dying for you and nothing was stopping him from doing that. He came to die for you. 
He came to get on the cross for you. Next verse is 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they had, they were going. Hold on one second, guys. Oh, I forgot tonight is a church for my son. So context here. Let's let's because now we're now we're diving into the actual reason why we went live, right? Here's the 45 minutes in. We're now diving into the portion that I said I wanted to discuss. But now we have an idea. Now we have an idea of what's going on. And as I always say, I want to remind you what we're about to read. I want you to read it as if you're one of the Jewish people that just experienced that last bit we read. Right. There's this guy. You don't know who he is. You don't know he's God. You don't know he's going to get crucified, rise on the third day. You don't know this stuff yet. Don't read it from the future. Shut that part down. Slam it away. You're just a normal Jew, and, and this guy's out here preaching some really good stuff, and, and then he feeds us all. Like, oh, my goodness. Yo, bro, I haven't eaten in like that in days where I had enough bread and fish, and it's, it's crazy. And then, and then you wake up the next day, and Jesus is gone, but he never got on a boat. You know he didn't get on a boat. How did he get across the water? So here we go. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. You might be thinking like, hey, amen, they were seeking Jesus. Not necessarily. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me. I mean, I'm sorry, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So again, they showed up after he just fed everybody bread, and he tells them, because he knows their heart, you're seeking more food. You, you, you're seeking more. You, you are here because you got filled with this free food, not because you know who I am, not because you recognize who I am, and then says, but I brought you something better, the real food. Remember, I said he uses what you bring up to help you. And, and he's going to do it again, so pay attention. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Because it says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So that he's telling them, work towards that. And then Jesus answers, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. This is the same passage, 
like spoiler alert, I, I don't have to wait to get to it, where Catholics will say that he's telling people that you have to eat my flesh in order to be saved, and that's why they walked away. But here goes these Jews right here that that believe in Yahweh. Hear me, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. I share my glory with no one. Do not have any false gods. Do not have any idols. Don't bow down and worship anybody. They hear all that. They know all that. And here's this man in front of them saying, the work of God, what God wants you to do is believe in me. First of all, let me tell you this right now. If I came on this app or this YouTube or TikTok, whatever, and I said to you guys, we have to be doing the works of God. And you comment, Mike, what are the works of God? Mike, 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 what are the words? Mike, tell me, Mike, Mike, please. And I said, guys, it's simple. This is the work of God that you believe in me. You all would block me instantly because that's blasphemy if he's not God. And this is the first of many hard sayings that are about to be talked about. So when someone tries to say, oh, they walked away because Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. No, that's not why they walked away alone. In fact, we're going to see it when they walk away, what was said beforehand. So he tells them the works of God is to believe in me. So again, you not knowing who Jesus is, put your mind in the, uh, in the place of this Jewish person. This is pretty crazy. But they, they test him. They say, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Here's a couple of things I want you to identify here. First and foremost, whenever we see people coming to Jesus to ask questions, we always notice where their heart is early on, which already tells you which way this is going to go. He just fed them bread from heaven, basically. He made bread and, and fish appear from thin air. It didn't rain from heaven like in the wilderness, but he did make it appear from thin air. And yet they ask him, what signs do you perform? Knowing good and well, he just did the same thing already. He just showed that he can do the same thing that Moses asked God to do. He can do it on his will. But they ask him that. And notice what they said. Our fathers ate manna. And then he said, then they quote, he gave them bread from heaven. So they bring up God giving us bread from heaven. Let's watch Jesus do what I told you he does. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So he takes what they said. So again, I'm, let me, let's run back and let's think about how this is being worded straight through. Jesus feeds 5,000 plus what women and children. He leaves, goes across the water. They follow him. They said, Rabbi, where you been at, man? We've been trying to find you. He said, man, you, you're seeking me, but you ain't seeking me for the right reason. You, you over here because you got your belly filled up yesterday and you want more food. That's, that's what you're doing over here. And then from there, they talk. I mean, he talks to them about uh, where was we were just at, about doing the work of God and to stop chasing food, instead chase the Lord. And that's when they said, well, give us a sign then. Moses gave us bread from heaven. And he said, you fool, God is giving you me. I am the bread of heaven. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Did he go on and then say, well, after I am gone, you'll eat my bread 
and you I mean you'll eat my you'll eat this bread every time you you eat my flesh once a week and no he said this i am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger notice here he doesn't say whoever eats me shall not hunger he says whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst well he is the bread of life and he is and we drink his blood we eat his flesh and drink his blood his flesh is the bread and that is for us to come to him and we shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst his flesh represents the sacrifice his blood represents the new covenant he tells us this in the in the last supper this is being broken for you my my body this is my body this is my blood All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Hold on now. Reel it back real quick. Because the next line says, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And the Catholics want me to believe that they're grumbling about him bringing the bread, but that's not the case. What they're grumbling about is that this man in front of them just said he comes down from heaven. What else did he say? Literally, again, if you're a first century Jew, this man that you know isn't God, because in your mind, God can't be a man. That's not, that's not God. It's just a man, is telling you, I have come down from heaven. He is telling you that he can raise people up on the last day. He literally says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And then he says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. So this is the second time in this passage where he says, belief will save you. And yet again. Catholics want to tell me because what he says in a little bit, if I don't eat his flesh the way they say so, then I'm not saved. Is this, is this, is this what the passage is really teaching us? Is John 6 really saying you better eat my flesh and drink my blood or else you won't be saved? Physically, I mean, obviously we must eat his blood. We must. So let me say this also. We must eat his flesh and drink his blood in the way that he's describing it. And this is another thing that I know I get distracted. I won't go off off topic too much, but a lot of times Catholics will quote early church fathers that say things like, um, I long to take the blood of Christ and the body of Christ and, and every week. And this is not, that's not proving anything. I agree with them. I love the body and blood of Christ. I love participating in the Holy communion and eating the body and drinking the blood. I caught the body and blood, but I understand that I'm not literally eating his flesh, literally drinking his blood and eating his divinity. Because that's actually, they believe that when you take communion, you are in, you are taking in his body, literally his flesh, his blood, and his divinity, eating his divinity. I'm, I'm not saying it's pagan, but it sounds really pagan when you think of eating God. Just saying. 
But I digress. I just wanted to point out in case you hear people talk about church fathers, that's not don't let them try and impose what the church father means unless the church father lays it out. Because transubstantiation, which is the dogma that they believe in that says that it becomes biologically flesh and blood, that didn't get established until the 1200s. I hear my son crying. So the Jew, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Notice, notice where they go. I'm, I'm glad that happened, right? So look, ready? The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of heaven that came down from heaven. How do I know that's what they were actually grumbling about, not the bread part? Because right here, how do you how does he say I have come down from heaven? Notice they don't say, how does he say he's the bread? Notice that's not where their emphasis is at. This is yes. Jesus does say, eat my flesh and drink my blood in this passage, but that is not the reason why the people walked away. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. There goes another affirmative statement that Jesus is saying, I will do it. I will raise him up. This is my authority. Then it says, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Pause there. If you were that first century Jew listening to Jesus, would you have caught that? Like, actually, hold on, guys. My kids are being loud. Give me one moment. Hey. All right, I gave you time to think about what you what you should have caught right there. If I was the Jews right there, I'd have been like, um, excuse me, Jesus, real quick. You said um nobody has actually seen the father except he was from God and and that's you because you said you're from God and you said you know you you've seen the father so um 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 you've seen God and are you saying Moses never saw God and you're saying Adam never saw God wait what because what is Jesus showing us that all the times that we thought we saw the father in the old testament that was Jesus as John chapter 1 says Adam was walking in the garden with Jesus, the pre the pre-incarnate, the inter, the eternal son, the image of God, the word of God. Abraham met with Jesus. Lot, uh, not Lot, um, uh, uh, Jacob with Jesus. That that would have caught you off guard right there. Like, wait a minute, bro. You said you've seen God? And then he says what? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Again, he points to what saves, believing. And then he goes back to bread. I am the bread of life. And then he tells you why he's going back to bread. 
your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Because why? Because they brought that up. They brought up, well, what about the signs that my fathers had? My fathers had bread from heaven. Well, what do you give us? Here he goes again. Yet your fathers ate from the men in the wilderness. Uh, yeah, you're right, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that you don't, when you eat, you don't, uh, that. so that one may eat it, eat of it and not die. Well, wait a minute. Here's where we go. We're going a little bit deeper. Ready? This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So eating the bread of heaven means you will not die. Well, wait a minute. Right here, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So if believing gives me eternal life, and then he switches up and says, I am the bread of life, and I've come down from heaven, and if you eat of this bread, you do not die, which is eternal life. So how do you eat? The bread of life by putting your faith and trust in him, by believing in him. Then he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. There it goes again. The bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. There it is. So why does he end up saying eat my flesh? Because his flesh is the bread, the bread that he gives for this world. It's all right there. There's no way you're going to tell me that he's talking about the Eucharist right now. He's not. Then the Jews disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So this is where the Catholics obviously are going to point to saying, see, they're upset about that. Okay, let's keep reading. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So there's another hint at what it means to eat his flesh and drink his blood abiding in him as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Do you think Jesus eats the father? No, Jesus submits to the father. And he's telling you that the same relationship he has with the father, that, that, that is who gives him what he has. Likewise, we should have that with him. So right there again, more proof that he's not saying that you need to uh, physically eat his flesh. He's saying, as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. In fact, do you want to talk about um, feeding what we're eating from him? We feed from him. I mean, he feeds us with glory, with grace, with love, with mercy. That's what he feeds us in his daily bread, which is the word of God. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And again, what did Jesus say a little bit ago about living forever? Whoever believes has eternal life. Go up a little bit higher. I think we uh, highlighted it when he said, um, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever believes in me. 
whoever believes in me. Let's continue now. What was that? Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if I were to see, what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Now, I want you to pay attention. The, these disciples are about to walk away soon. And remember what I said. Catholics will tell you that the reason they walked away is because he said, eat my flesh. Notice this is an entirely different moment right now, right? So a minute ago, he was in the synagogue. Now he's not. In, now it's out, and now it's a different passage, right? And now he's talking about, like, don't take offense at what I'm saying. He said, what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And then listen to this. Listen to this. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. He's showing you that, that what I'm speaking to you is spiritual. And you guys are confused because you, you can't think spiritually. You are carnally minded. They thought he really meant eat the flesh and drink the blood. You're right. They really did think that. They also denied the fact of who he is. And we're about to find out why they really walked away. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to by uh, uh granted him by the father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Why did they walk away? He just literally said he's the son of man who is, who, who, what if he ascends to the place before that he, he, that he gives this information so that people will be saved. And then he says, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the father. And then they said, oh, this is, this nah, bro. We good on this. This is idolatry. This is, this is, this is, this is something I don't want no parts in. And they walked away. They didn't walk away after the initial discussion about him being the bread of life. And then it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? I love that verse. I know that's not anything to do with Eucharist at this moment, but I love that verse when people be like, oh, you can still walk away from salvation if you want. To whom shall I go? That's such a strange thing to even think is possible. I, I don't know how it's possible. To whom shall we go? And then I love what else he says. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray them, betray him. This is the word of the Lord. That was a reading from the Gospel of John chapters uh, 4, 5, and 6. I, uh, sorry, guys, I'm doing something on my phone real quick. That's why I'm not looking at the screen, but I hope that you enjoyed it. Um, and then I'll try to hit some questions before I hop up off of here. And um, again, guys, it, 
I just want to be the starting line for you. So I'm not expecting you to be like, oh my gosh, now I 100% agree with everything that you're saying, Mike, and 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 I dismiss this, and because it must proceed from faith. I want you to get there on your own. If you do get there, if you don't get there, I just want to be the one that plants a seed to tell you, hey, that's not what the scriptures say, because it's not. I, I mean, is there a case for uh, the way that they describe the Eucharist? Maybe if you went somewhere else, but this ain't it. Matter of fact, we can even look at, uh, I mean, like we said, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, the, 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 the Catholic Church looks at, uh, at uh, hold on, let me finish doing what I'm doing and I'll be with you in two seconds. So when it comes to the Eucharist, the Catholic Church considers it a representation a represent a representing or representation of the sacrifice of Christ. So that means every day in a Catholic church, Christ is being sacrificed. Not a symbol. They say it's a re uh, a representation of the sacrifice of Christ, less bloody. It's exact words. But yet, what does Hebrews ten say? This is why I said earlier we're going to have this open. When he said above, you have neither. Uh, uh, oh no. Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Then listen. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of, the, of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see... Uh, the Catholic Church, and again, I'm not doing this to bash Catholics. I just want you guys to be aware. The Catholic Church believes that the going to to receiving the Eucharist is a like you have to do that. If you don't, you're you're committing mortal sins. I believe if you miss it for over a year or something like that, it's considered mortal sin. Don't get don't quote me on a timeline. But um, I had someone comment earlier saying that now that I'm not a Catholic anymore, that I am literally um losing out on my access to like Jesus and the grace and the Eucharist and and it's this idea of of connecting the fle it's fleshly carnally minded things it's looking at an object thinking i need this object and not that it's a heart posture and that's why i pointed to the fact that i wanted you to see Hebrews 10 Hebrews 10 says that it was one sacrifice for all time perfecting all people sanctifying all people one sacrifice not repeated sacrifices you don't need to keep going back to the cross for more grace you don't have to keep going back to the cross for more glory you don't get that stuff it's one sacrifice one bit of salvation and glory's on him not you none of our works mean nothing none of our deeds mean nothing and if you want to believe that 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 John chapter six is saying what you think it says, then go ahead. But this is why we have went through the entire thing. And I'll send people here when they ask me questions saying, Mike, what about the Eucharist? What about it? And then I hear, what about Eucharistic miracles? And here's what I want to point out here real quick. When it comes to miracles, I have a rule. I pretend that someone's telling me a miracle about Zeus or Aphrodite or Thor. Why? Because if I was to be told that Thor did something, I'm going to hold it to the level of scrutiny that it deserves to be held to. But for some reason, when someone hears about something with Christianity, people get excited like, 
Oh, yeah, I, I believe that. That's my Lord and Savior. It's what you want to be true. Just like when that one statue of Jesus was crying and then people were literally like putting it in cups and drinking it and, and rubbing it on themselves. But then they found out that a sewage pipe broke and it was leaking and it, and, it, and it came through the statue and came out the eyes just weirdly like that. But it was literally fecal matter. But they wanted it to be true. I, I can't tell you about miracles that I wasn't present for, and I don't know people that were present for it. Because if I knew people that were present for it, then I can trust that their testimony is true because I know my brothers and sisters who are in Christ Jesus. I don't know these random people. And if it if God wanted that miracle to be in my life, he would have made me present when it happened, or he would bring that miracle to my life over here. Miracles aren't things for other people outside of the miracle. The miracle is meant for who sees it. God knows what he's doing. So as far as Eucharistic miracles go, I can't uh, 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 just believe things because, well, it's Jesus. Like, yeah, of course, I want all the Jesus miracles ever to be real. But that's that's when you have a bias. A bias. Is it a bias or is it a bias? Do you still keep it biased? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, guys, that's, that's John chapter 6. I hope you guys got something from this. I hope that I gave you a good starting point to really go in there because John 6 and John 5, I'm glad we read, read John 5 also because I think that it's just an amazing chapter. This is why I always send people to the Gospel of John first. I believe John just has a way of wording his 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 structuring his paper and wording his, his statements and just really putting together um, something that's almost poetic. It's so beautiful when you see who Jesus was through the eyes of John, someone who cared deeply for him and it's just a beautiful gospel um i will definitely be sharing this with anybody that has these questions and again um if you hear someone asking about this well what about john 6 and when jesus tells us to eat his flesh point him to this podcast again i want to remind you about what, what, what we read in hebrews 10 the old covenant's uh, sacrificial system was to be a reminder of sin. Jesus told us to remember him. That's another problem with the Catholic Church that, and I'm not trying to make this a full-on Catholic episode of everything they believe, but, you know, they they believe that you can lose salvation. They believe that um, um, you can get dirty again, that you need more sex, like you need more grace, and that the, and they also disagree that Christ died in place of us so that's a whole nother episode. Matter of fact, next time I do one of these solo episodes, I'm definitely going to probably cover that. Uh, guys, if you're watching this after the fact and you enjoyed it and you would like to see more throughout the week content like this, please comment in the video and let me know. Um, if you're listening on Spotify, please hit the subscribe button. Give us a, a comment, whatever you want. Just let us know how you feel about how this sounds because it's not recorded for audio podcast. This is 100% set up for the live stream. Um, so I, I'm not sure about what the what what that seems what that sounds like for you guys on Spotify. Sounds fine to me, but you know, maybe that's just my own bias. Uh tonight's podcast is at 9 p.m. Central, Mondays and Wednesdays, 9 p.m. Central. Tonight we are going to be reading Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible. And here's a fun, interesting fact uh for the day. JD and myself were on a phone call and he was saying he really has it on his heart to read Psalm 119 and, and do a Bible study on it. So I was like, okay, cool. Uh, about 20, 30 minutes passed by. I'm in the garage doing some work and my daughter walks out and she says, um, I'm done my list today because our kids have a list every day, chores, some workbooks, reading, uh, exercise time. Like we have a structured uh, summertime list. And after that, they can do whatever they want. But they got to knock the list out. So she comes to me and says, I'm done my list and I'm checking her list. And I asked her, what did you do for Bible time? She said, I was reading my um, 
I was memorizing my uh, my my weekly verse and I looked at it and it was Psalm 119 and I think it was like verse five. And I was like, ah, that's uh, I see you, Lord, a little confirmation there. So I'm excited to dive into Psalm 119. I'm about to I'm about to head out of here. I don't think I see any other questions. Um, I think I saw a couple earlier, but I think that I ended up answering them in the continuing speech that I was going through. Um, yeah, I don't see. I mean, Mr. Holly here said Jesus lost a lot of followers when he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. I would disagree with you. We literally just read the entire chapter and it doesn't seem like that at all. Um, but yeah, guys, thank you guys so much. I'm going to pray for you guys to have an amazing day. If you're listening on Spotify, if you're watching on a YouTube, uh, you know, past recording, then I still want to pray for you today because I pray for the body of Christ every day. So I'm always praying for you. I'm interceding for you, whether I know your name or not. And I just want to pray that the Lord watch over us today, that he guide us. Oops, sorry about that. That he guides us, that he keeps us on the straight and narrow path and that he fills us with boldness and courage, but at the same time, grace and mercy and love and, and allow our, our faith to be shown through our love. We pray that the Father is glorified every day in our lives, that we glorify him and that we praise him. And we thank our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for the sacrifice that he has done for us. We thank you, Father, for sending your only son into this world to, to put uh, put on our, uh, our sin and take on our punishment. And we just want to thank you for the little things today because life is just so there and gone. Tomorrow could be the last day. Today could be the last day. And we need to be thankful in all things that we have and do. And I pray all these words through Jesus, holy and amazing name. Amen. Thank you guys so much. As always, I love you guys. I love you guys with all my heart. And I appreciate everything you guys do. Supporting, listening, following, Thank you guys. I say I really don't. I'm at a loss of words to just say thank you for how much you guys have uh, showed that you are that you care about the podcast and, and the ministry. And yeah, guys, I just don't have any words. And you know that's random for me to be at a loss of words, but you guys are awesome. God bless and go in peace. <laughs>